production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. I remember growing up uh, just well over just over in New South Wales, actually from Echuca, but in the 1950s, uh, friends and I used to go to the first Chinese restaurant in uh, Echuca, and uh, we were fascinated by the, the food. So, and we loved some of the dishes, some of the, you know, sort of Australianised, I guess, Chinese dishes. So we bought electric fry pans and tried to emulate them ourselves, which was a total disaster. Barbara Nickel has long enjoyed various Asian cuisines, but it wasn't until she began working on her master's, which eventually turned into a PhD, that she started to study the emergence of Chinese restaurants in Australia. Today, we sit with Barbara in the Chinese Museum in Melbourne, where she volunteers, and discuss her research to understand why you can find a Chinatown in most cities in Australia, and how Chinese restaurants came to be in even the smallest of Australian towns. We begin to understand Melbourne's role in this emergence and see how legislation, war, and business led to the prominent cuisine so cherished by Melbourne residents. Stay with us as we learn how the past and the future of Melbourne is shaped by the Chinese. Welcome to Culture and Cuisine, the podcast, season two, where we are creating conversations in the Melbourne community to show that everybody is from somewhere. Even the locals of today are shaped by the foreigners of the past. And with that, we can begin to understand and appreciate the diversity around us. I'm your host, Casey Hirschman. Sharing the table today is Barbara Nickel. Barbara Nickel. I'm a retired university librarian. Uh, I was working at Swinburne University in Hawthorne, uh, retired many years ago. (laughs) I uh, decided to go back to university when I found myself um, thinking about the future, I guess, and enrolled in a master's degree at Melbourne University. Got halfway through that and realised that if I was doing all this research, I might as well keep going. So I did. Barbara's husband's career allowed Barbara and him the opportunity to see much of Southeast Asia and make many friends throughout the regions. While catching up with one couple in Melbourne, Barbara shares how she decided upon the topic she chose for her thesis. One couple in particular who used to come out to Australia from Taiwan quite regularly, we used to catch up with them for lunch and we were lunching in a restaurant. Uh, I don't know if you know the shark fin restaurants in Little Burke Street. No, I haven't. James Sue's restaurants. Uh, he also had one out in the suburbs and we were lunching there and the wife of the couple said to me, this must be one of the earliest Chinese restaurants in Melbourne. And I thought, I don't think so. <laughs> so that got me started. And at that time, I was searching around for a topic that would interest me to the point where I would keep going. So I had a, had a little bit of a dig into the history of Chinese uh, 
restaurants in Melbourne and decided that that was it. So that was really it, and I haven't regretted it. It's been an amazing journey. Barbara shares what brought the first large wave of Chinese immigrants to Melbourne. Well, I guess you've got to go back to the gold rushes in the mid-19th century. That's when the Chinatown, if you want to call it that section of Little Burke Street, was um, established. There were small restaurants or small cookshops as small English and French restaurants were called cookshops, so the Chinese got labelled with that. There were also many boarding houses because Chinese were coming into um, Victoria and then going up to the gold fields in central Victoria and they were staying, there were boarding houses that had dining rooms, if you like. So then I think the first first, uh, Chinese restaurant that uh, I found in the directories, the um, Melbourne and Victorian directories, was um, in 1863, one here in Littleburg Street. So I think I've got some statistics here. By 1910, this is after the Immigration Restriction Act, of course, the the number of restaurants of all persuasions in Melbourne were, were 155, mainly in the city, but not not entirely. Mm-hmm. Of those, 20 were Chinese, and that represented 11.4% oh, wow. so of all restaurants. So we, we continued to get Chinese s- settlers, um, but the Immigration Restriction Act mm-hmm. came into being in 1901, and that created issues for Chinese. It was a, a discriminatory legislation. It, discriminated against non-Europeans. The Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, commonly known as the White Australia Policy, was in effect in Australia until 1958 and sought to exclude non-Europeans and keep certain classes of individuals out of the country via means of a dictation test. During the test, the immigrant had to write an essay of 50 words in any European language decided upon by the immigration officer. In fact, only 52 out of 1,359 people between 1902 and 1909 passed the test. Despite this, Australia still had many successful Chinese businessmen contributing to society. Barbara shares how they were able to get around the Immigration Restriction Act. It was interesting, looking through the archives, the government archives, it's interesting how there was always room for negotiation if you were a substantial businessman. Mm. It, uh, I guess that was a fairly common, <laughs> common occurrence. And uh, initially they were able to, in the early years, first, probably the first five years of the uh, 20th century, they were allowed to bring in their wives and children, and then that was was replaced by another act that required them to allow them to travel back to China, but they could not bring their families here. But again, with the you know with the knowledge and knowing the right sort of people, mm-hmm. they could always negotiate. Yeah. But small restaurateurs, of course, had no chance of yeah. doing that. 
despite this act, restaurants still grew throughout Melbourne. But it wasn't until after the Great Depression that the Melbourne restaurant scene really began to expand. Restaurants started to, um, both Chinese and non-Chinese, to expand in numbers. In uh, 1930, for instance, there were 228 restaurants across Melbourne, mostly in the city. Of those, 12 were Chinese. They had dropped over the years of depression. So that, but by 1944-45, with 395 restaurants across the city, 23 were Chinese. So even though I guess the sector was small, it was growing. Mm. And around the mid-1930s, 1934, mm-hmm. the government introduced... They, at that stage, the government realised that ch- the, the Chinese community, the business community, were restaurants and other, other businesses, some other businesses, not all, but some, um, were contributing to the economy because they were unable to get staff and they were getting older by then, you know, they were starting to think about retirement or or, um, at least keeping their businesses going as they got older. They had to think about having, you know, getting staff, people to take over and that required being able to get family, they want their, you know, they want the success in planning to be family. So that required them to, uh, I think, I guess, negotiate with the government. But the government, by in 1934, recognised that that they were contributing to the economy, and they introduced legislation to allow them to bring in cooks and cafe workers. Now, it wasn't just for Chinese restaurants; there were other Chinese businesses, but not all Chinese businesses. I think Chinese laundries were not included and I think a couple of others weren't but Chinese businesses like market gardeners like um, vegetable merchants at the, at the city markets and so on could bring in their apply to bring in um, in the you know workers mm-hmm. so that they could take a long-term view of doing business in Australia I guess so when that included Chinese restaurants um, the Chinese businessmen took the opportunity mm. to bring in family, mm. um, many of them, mostly cooks. I mean, the government's uh, opinion was that they should be able to get restaurant workers mm. from local Chinese, but they saw the, um, the opportunity yeah. <laughs> to bring in family, and many of the people I interviewed came at that time uh, with no cooking skills at all. <laughs> uh, but they, there was a pretty tough business actually because they had to, the restaurants had to be su- substantial. I think they had to, their um, annual income had to be around 5,000 pounds. They had to, they had to be engaged in overseas in export trade. And that and export trade, I think, had to the figure was around five hundred pounds mm-hmm. that they had to be um, contributing and export duties and so on. And uh, so it wasn't easy for them, 
but uh, it was really the mid-1930s, I think, mm. that um, restaurants took off. A turning point for Chinese restaurants was during World War II. Many restaurants had issues with staffing due to the number of men required for the war effort, but Chinese restaurants actually had an advantage over other cuisines. The Chinese restaurants actually had one advantage because the wartime refugees and ships deserters and so on, the refugees particularly that were coming in from the Pacific, uh, were allowed to come into the country and stay, I think, for five years and work wherever they liked. So a lot of them, of course, worked in, got work in Chinese restaurants. And many of them became shareholders in the restaurants. And so they did very well. And also we had thousands. We had something like, again, I do check this, but I think there were something like 30 or more thousand um, American servicemen in Melbourne over the war years. Of course, a lot of them were used to eating, much more so than Australians eating out, <laughs> eating in restaurants. Um, and if they came from the West Coast, mm-hmm. California, they would be very familiar with Chinese food too. Mm-hmm. So they were also keen um, customers of mm-hmm. Chinese restaurants. And, of course, many people were coming into the city mm-hmm. uh, for the first time, particularly women, mm-hmm to work because, uh, as I said, the businesses were desperate for staff. So they'd come into the city, they had to eat somewhere. So the Chinese restaurateurs took great advantage of that, as did other restaurants. Up until that point, though, I would think there were, I mean, there were still Westerners eating in Chinese restaurants before that, um, particularly... Earlier in early in the 20th century, we had the um, what we called the Bohemian um, group of artists, artists and uh, writers and so on. They were in, very enthusiastic uh, customers, particularly of Italian restaurants, to our Italian restaurant sector at that time. Mm-hmm. But but as I said, over the war years, the people who would normally eat out began to eat out and. Um, after the war, or during the war, Arthur Colwell, who was our minister, f- I think he was minister for immigration yeah, mm-hmm. in the Chifley government, um, introduced the Wartime Refugees Removals Act. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese, Chinese who had established themselves working in restaurants here for over the war years, so probably over four or five years, um, and also as I said, taken out shares in Chinese restaurants, mm. they were in danger of being, you know, sent back home. Mm. So there was, uh, they, of course, weren't happy about that. And there was quite a, they, they weren't backward in coming forward. They knew the law, mm. they knew their entitlements, and they also established links with people in the community, non-Chinese in the community, who were quite influential. There was a lot of um, um, correspondence backwards and forwards with uh, Canberra, with our, with government, mm-hmm. and um, this went on for some time. Then 
when the later in that decade when the um i think around 19 the 1950s the uh menzies liberal uh country party minister was um harold holt um he started to water down that act and eventually it was discarded and it was in i think from that time on of course the issues with the white australia policy from that from the over the war years and uh and those early post war years were starting to develop amongst just ordinary australians they were starting to realize that that immigration restriction act the restriction on non-europeans was was not good it was not it just wasn't uh, an appropriate act mm-hmm. um we sh- and we should be developing links with other countries as well most of our most of our links of course were still with britain mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of and i when i um investigated major newspapers around that time i found to my surprise how many people were writing into the papers and saying well you know this act is wrong um we shouldn't be discriminating in this way yeah yeah i was going to ask if you thought it was more um from a societal push or an economic push of the government being like it makes more economic sense for us to have ties with other countries trade like oh, yes. in the diversity in the workplace or was it more society being like this is not right we should get rid of this act i think both obviously developing around that time developing links trade with uh, asian countries was certainly on the agenda and uh, i think in 1974 goff whitlam again back in in the uh, with the labor party in in power mm-hmm. i think he was the first he developed um strong links with uh, the the uh, Chinese Communist Party I ask Barbara when she thinks Australian society's mentality shifted from exclusion to inclusion and how that came about I think we um I think the war had a huge impact on this country in that respect mm-hmm. it had an impact in many respects but those those years I think opened dreadful as they were they were shocking but it op- i think it opened us up to a realization that we were part of of the world huh? yeah but I, i do think those years were quite significant in changing us in many many ways but it's interesting how as i mentioned before it's a matter of having that contact with people if you remain isolated you're never going to have that opportunity to get to know people to understand them to develop a relationship with them you, you know you've got to and restaurants are such wonderful places to no matter what cultural background the restaurateurs are just to um to develop that sort of contact I remember interviewing a nurse actually we had mm-hmm. our Melbourne hospital was just across in Lonsdale Street there went before it moved to moved to um an, another part of the city this particular nurse this is an elderly lady of course 
when I interviewed Herbert, she said, I remember when we came off duty at the Melbourne Hospital, just just across in uh, Lonsdale Street, it were, we, we hadn't eaten, you know, the doctors and nurses would walk over to Little Burke Street to have a meal because the restaurants were open longer hours than most other restaurants. So there are all sorts of, yeah. of you know, thing, all sorts of issues that change you. Yeah. One thing that uh, is, is interesting is that the government, because in the government's eyes, Chinese and Japanese people were, you know, they looked, they had similar features. <laughs> so they initiated a, an Australia-wide inspection of Chinese restaurants looking for spies. <sighs> and that was interesting because when I got the, uh, the files that, that um, documented the results of that, that huge inspection which was carried out by in country areas by the local policemen. Mm. It was interesting that in Chinese restaurants back then, this was about 1943, I think, from memory, in most restaurants there were non-Chinese, often Chinese mm -hmm. customers, um, service personnel, um, Australian and American service personnel in all of those restaurants. And, there, and there were, this is right across Australia. Wow. Wow. So all throughout Australia, they were seeing that diverse of a clientele. Yeah. And so you'd have to look at the war mm -hmm. as a turning point in our approach to multiculturalism, I think. Although Chinatowns still exist in most major cities in Australia, Chinese began to disperse to the suburbs as early as the 1930s. Barbara explains why and how that occurred. Um, Chinese restaurateurs started to move into mm. suburban Melbourne in the 1930s when they could bring in staff. I think this has probably been one of the major factors in these, this decision for them, mm -hmm. when they could actually manage to bring in, well, family or whoever, and, as I said, take a longer-term view of doing business in Australia... They started to look at particularly the inner suburbs like St Kilda mm -hmm. and so on um, as opportunities to open businesses. And, they're, and they're, um, that's when um, Chinese restaurants started to spread out into the suburbs. So it wasn't just in Chinatown from... I mean, there were always little Chinese eateries, little Chinese cookshops mm. around the markets, the mm. city markets. So, mm -hmm. you know, where there are several markets where because and because a lot of a lot of Chinese people were market gardeners, mm. and they would be coming into the markets to uh, the merchants to mm. deliver their produce, and they would have to mm -hmm. have to eat before they you know, went back home. So um, so there were those little little cooker eateries. Mm -hmm. But I think up until... I should have checked my thesis. I, I'll email you, if you like, and uh, when the first, uh, first major expansion into suburban Melbourne took place, 
would have been the 1930s, I think. Mm. And there were some, uh, there was one particular, a couple, but one in uh, in St Kilda, the, uh, the Taiping right on St Kilda Junction, if you know anything much about Melbourne, it's a, quite a big junction. Mm. Um, it's only recently that that uh, restaurant changed its name. It probably didn't, it wouldn't have had the same, you know, management all those years, but it opened in the 1930s and it uh, was still going. By the 1960s, you would have been hard-pressed to find a town without at least one Chinese restaurant. But still, Chinatowns remained where communities like the Greeks and Italians seemed to disperse away from having one central location. Barbara shares her thoughts on why that is. It was it was a sense of community for the Chinese too, and that was important. I mean, if they'd gone out into the suburbs as early as you know, sort of the, the pre, you know, the sort of nineteen twenties, that would have been a a fairly lonely existence. But yeah. but the um, the businesses were, as I mentioned. Right, going right back, just in the, that post-White Australia years, small restaurateurs hardly had... They had dif- well, they would have had difficulty introducing people from home. Mm-hmm. Um, the requirements, monetary and other requirements, were enormous, and that meant that only um, businessmen with links... To, the, to the restaurant sector and to other sectors, they had the, you know, they had um, interest in a number of businesses, would have had op- the opportunity to negotiate with the government to be, to be able to do that and survive. So many, when I developed a database of Chinese restaurants, so many of the small restaurants around that time just disappeared. But they had, uh, you know, the requirements to... um, Oh, and the other requirement that was interesting, and if you look at the menus at the time, was that they had to be serving Chinese dishes to non-Chinese customers. Now, so the menus were always examined by inspectors. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I think two-thirds of the menu had to be Chinese dishes um, to non... Well, to obviously Chinese people ate in the restaurants as well. But um, they had to to make sure that, in fact, they just didn't establish a restaurant that would compete with non-Chinese restaurants like you couldn't open a fish and chip shop well exactly exactly (laughs) so there were you know there were it it was it wasn't easy Mm. for them it was uh, a very difficult time until the 1970s for people I've you know and of course families worked in the restaurants and uh, it's hard work yeah even young children I've interviewed Mm. people women you know people who quite elderly now, but they worked as children in the restaurants to keep them going. With an evolving mentality towards immigrants, I ask Barbara if she thinks Chinese restaurants evolved their menu as well to more authentic Chinese styles. I'd, look, I've, I've always maintained 
that no transported food culture but can be truly authentic. Mm. Yeah, fair. Because um, in Little Burke Street, for instance, from very early on, oh, very early in the 20th century, um, the Fun Key grocery store was um, bringing in uh, foodstuffs from local producers uh, up where I grew up. Um, the the big melons were the we had a, a Chinese market gardener um, with a far a little market garden farm just out of just not far from where we lived, and he was growing bitter melons and sending them down to Melbourne. So no matter how how you you know you look at how whichever way you look at authenticity, mm. if it's it's not going to be the same. Yeah, and also in. Uh, the 1930s, the um, uh, import duties rose dramatically. Mm. So, bringing in shark's fin and various other special, very special, very expensive Chinese dishes would was uh, it became extremely expensive for restaurateurs. And at that stage, I found evidence of them dropping those very specialised dishes from their menus. Not entirely. I mean, some of the more... Some of the, the larger restaurants would keep going, but a lot of people would... Uh, would had to drop those um, specialised... So, you know, you could argue differently, but I I think it's, it's, very, di it's very difficult to accept that transported food culture can stay completely authentic. Yeah. I asked Barbara why she believes she is so open to accepting and trying to understand diversity in her community. Having the opportunity to travel to Asia mm. um, and then getting to know people, of course, mm. and and uh, getting familiar, eating eating out a lot, particularly... Chinese restaurants, and not only that, was uh, the Italian uh, pizza <laughs> takeaway pizza shops, which were, you know, sort of spreading around the place. But yes, it certainly does. It, that can that connection through food yeah. is really important yeah. in breaking down cultural barriers. Yeah, it's like a place to start. That something we all do, so you can relate to it a bit more. Yes, I, I think I thoroughly enjoyed my research and yeah. in particular meeting families and hearing their stories, um, amazing stories of survival, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I met with such generosity. It was, it was a, you know, an amazing experience. So, I'm so pleased I chose that uh, area. And now I've, <laughs> I have my own little library bag. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, I think it's, uh, I think that, I think that connection, and as I said, we've, I've got, now got a community garden plot. And I have a lady from Vietnam. I have uh, a Dutch family, uh, an Englishman. A, a Greek man and an Italian with all with plots right around me. Uh, a couple from uh, 
what used to be Eastern Europe. Um, amazing. And you get to know them all. You have the opportunity to talk about something that is common to to every, each one of you, and that's growing food. So food is important. It's absolutely vital to these, you know, to, to our, well, to our lives, I guess, to our, the way we, um, we think about, as you said, think about other cultures, think about um, what's right and what's wrong about what we do. I wrap up the interview by asking Barbara what her favorite Chinese dish is. Uh, <laughs> I noticed that was on the list. Yeah. Um, actually, it started me thinking quite a lot about it. I'm 90% vegetarian, have oh, okay. been for generations. Yeah. Um, I think I, I certainly go to Chinese restaurants and all others as well, uh-huh. going to an Italian one tonight. Oh, wow. um, I think the little dim sum. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wait, the di- like the dim sum? Like the little the dim um, Okay, yeah, the little thing. I still haven't had one of those. Yeah. So I, I hear good things about them. Have, have you been to a, China, a Chinese restaurant since you've been here? I have, I have. Yeah, I just haven't gotten dim, yes. dim sums. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, that's all I have. I think we went through a lot of these, um, but... Yeah, I really appreciate the time. I learned oh, I so hope much. I it was useful. I sort yeah. of oh my gosh. wandered around all over the place. No, no, it was perfect. It was great. I got, yeah. that was, no, this was perfect. So thank you. Production and audio editing brought to you by Richard Borger with Meraki Recordings. 